0: Go ahead. Uh, And I think you may have answered it, but I was uh, thinking about the relationship between language and its use as sort of heralding or pointing to recognition of self and other. And with the heralding of other comes prohibitions, like they're all kind of coming together. Bingo. Yes. And Sonia, that's such a brilliant point. It It really gets at what I think is the is that like the next building block, if you think of these as like foundational blocks, the next one really does come to prohibition. Because what I want to ask then is, what's the first signifier? What's the first signifier that pops up? What is the signifier that introduces the cut? Show me where the incision first emerged, if we could put it that way. Now, in each of our lives, it's tough to say what the first signifier was. It could have been your first name that the primary caregiver used and you eventually learned, holy shit, that's me. I don't know what it would have been for you, but I can tell you, now bear with me here, exactly what the first signifier was for all of us. It does not matter what the word was. The function of the word was precisely the same for everybody. The first signifier has a universal function. And that universal function is prohibition. It is effectively a prohibition. So in a sense, no matter what the word was, it's effect or the experience of that word was no. It was no. And remember what I said yesterday, the next level up. What then is prohibited? What does this primitive no, whatever the word was, its effect was no, what does this prohibition effectively prohibit? And the answer is it prohibits any continued life without prohibition. It prohibits the human subject from moving through the world any further without language. And one of the things, again, I've mentioned that we see in psychosis At least according to Lacan, remember, according to Lacan, psychosis takes one of its foundational starts from an utter rejection of that primitive signifier. That primitive no. The psychotic is somebody who resists to the point of rejecting. And that's not all an action on their part. Oftentimes what can happen is that the The primitive no was so softly spoken, if it was spoken at all, that it didn't take much for an already perhaps chemically unstable being to just push it right over and start moving through life as though there were no prohibition, as though castration had not occurred. And this, Lacan would say, is the origin of psychosis, linguistically speaking. Of course, we know there are lots of ways that somebody could wind up, quote, psychotic, but Lacan wants to say that language is a very highly determinate force. And a lot depends coming up on your relationship to language. So for instance, in the case of the pervert, and perversion for Lacan is a technical category. It's a clinical structure. We could talk a little bit about it today if you want. The best riff on this to date, I think, is Bruce Spink's clinical introduction to Lacan. He has chapters just on psychosis and on perversion and on neurosis. But his stuff on perversion is particularly good. It covers sadism, masochism, and fetishism. In the case of the pervert, you can oftentimes see that the, quote, no was pronounced just a little bit louder than it was for the psychotic, but not as regularly enough, not as consistently enough as to allow the law as a structure of prohibition to set in, which is why the pervert always lives out highly intensified relationships to the law. You see, that's the nature of sadism and masochism, according to Lacan. Don't forget, this is all according to Lacan. The masochist does not get off on being hurt. What they get off on is being told in language how bad of a girl they've been. What they get off on is being shown the instrument that is about to inflict pain on them. What they get off on, in other words, is a highly intensified expression of the law, of prohibition. You deserve this, don't you? This is about to happen to you because you've been very bad. And they experience jouissance. This is an intensification of the no that was only slightly or weakly pronounced when they were coming up. Similarly, the sadist they don't get off on hurting others. That's the red herring, that's the trap Lacan says. What they fundamentally get off on is pronouncing the law onto others. So the sadistic judge is not somebody who enjoys playing executioner. The sadistic judge is somebody who says something like, if I had my druthers, I would take you out back and shoot you myself, but we're bound by the law here, so I sentence you to blah, 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 blah. Their enjoyment, the judge's sadistic enjoyment is at the level of threatening you with extreme violence, at the level of language. The sadist doesn't get off on whipping the masochist, They get off on walking over to the chest of toys, opening the lid and watching the masochist squirm as they reach inside for an instrument. That's what the sadistic person gets off on. It's an intensified relationship to the law, not about pain, it's about legislation. The masochist enjoys having intense legislative acts imposed upon them, not violence, the law, and the sadist enjoys pronouncing these legislative acts. The idea here though, is that because the original primitive no was very weak as they were growing up, their position in the symbolic as social beings, as structured beings, as contained humans, comfortable humans, consistent humans, requires that they spend much of their sexual life in this case trumping up that no, intensifying that no, making it louder. A way to think about this is just at the level of amplification. Perversion is fundamentally about amplifying the volume of the no that was only weakly heard earlier in life. So the psychotic never heard no. The pervert only heard it weakly and has to spend the rest of their lives in a state of enjoyment trumping up the law, and the neurotic, the quote unquote more more or less normal person, because normalcy doesn't exactly exist for this school of thought. You can traverse your neurotic symptoms and get past them. But normalcy is not a thing. Normalcy is like an average. Instead of the word normal, we should just use the term usually, Lacan would say. Usually this is how shit shakes down. That doesn't make you sane, it just means usually. But the neurotic is somebody for whom the no was pronounced coolly, calmly, consistently in a volume that can be heard and in a way that can be internalized as law. You see the dark side of this is when you have a primary caregiver who doesn't just say no or prohibit certain things like pooping in the potted plant or crying at the store when you don't get what you want. They don't just prohibit it by saying, no, that's not how we act. No, that's not appropriate. Climb back up here, get back up into your chair. Let's try again. That's the way you want it to be done. But unfortunately, that's not usually how it happens. The parent is tired. They're already pushed to the limit. The child pops off is having a moment and the parent raises their voice, perhaps even uttering a threat. If you don't get back up into this chair right now and finish your dinner, they may even slam their hand on the table and say, that's it. This is extremely problematic in the Lacanian viewpoint. The reason why this is extremely problematic is because the force of the no, the force of the prohibition is now linked to the jouissance of the lawgiver. The law is now only as powerful as the lawgiver's voice is raised. In other words, the law only holds for a child subjected to this insofar as the law is backed up by the threat of violence. And you can see that this is a normal thing that occurs if you allow me a little bit of social theory here, by the fact that most people don't commit crimes because they don't wanna do the time, not because they're against the committing of the crime. And I'll admit it myself, if I had my way, I would drive 95 miles per hour everywhere, like straight up, like down the city streets of San Francisco, 95 miles per hour. I just, I don't care. I'm a good enough driver. I'm pretty sure I could get it done. My ego tells me we're cool. Everything's gonna be fine. The reason why I don't, It's because I don't want to get arrested. I don't want to get caught. I don't want to get pulled over. It's the fear of punishment that encourages me to adhere to the law. And that is not a good relationship to have with the law. Ideally, the law that would be introjected, forming what Lacan calls the ego ideal, which is this capital I next to the big A in the bottom left-hand corner of the graph of desire. Ideally, the law that would be internalized and brought in, introjected, absorbed, and accepted would not be tied to the anger or the threat of the lawgiver or the lawkeeper or the fear of punishment. It would be because it's simply a reasonable law. I don't drive 95 because it's not safe. Because if everybody drove 95 miles per hour, San Francisco would be even more of a mess than it currently is. That's a more appropriate relationship with the law. Because take note here, if the force of the law is only strong insofar as it is backed up by the threat of violence from the lawgiver, That's a bad law, is a quick and dirty way to put this. Ideally, the law on its own could stand without the need for the threat of violence by a lawgiver. And because this can get a little bit abstract, let me just throw some examples your way. So when I was growing up, I was always watching a lot of Westerns. I loved Westerns. And the theme always seemed to be the same to me. There's like an unruly town. Think about this. The town is crazy. There are like some, a, a gang of troublemakers that are kind of taken over the town and the sheriff is in their pocket. And the town is just this lawless field of like sex and gambling and violence. It's just a mess and innocent people are being hurt and blah, blah, blah. And then out of the desert comes the lawgiver. Now, if you prefer the Old Testament, I give you Moses. If you're a feminist and you prefer the Old Testament, I give you Ruth. The lawgiver arrives, enters the lawless town and regulates that shit, unfortunately, usually by way of violence. But nevertheless, organizes and mobilizes the innocent people in a way that allows them to fight back, get a new sheriff in town, kick the gang out, whatever the case goes on. Establishing law and order in a previously lawless town. Now, to clarify what I'm getting at here, I want to really emphasize what happens next. The lawgiver never stays. Just as, and it's usually a he, stumbles in from the desert, once the town is settled, legislated, with a good sheriff in place, the lawgiver always leaves. That's the point. The test of the law is not through the barrel of a gun. The test of the law is how well it fares after the gun has left town, when there is no gun. And that's ideally how the law would work here. You shouldn't need to have somebody telling you that you're a bad boy or a bad girl. And I'm not saying that you should be doing that yourself either. You shouldn't be telling yourself that. Think about the the cycles of guilt and redemption that we go through around eating and exercising. And notice also the way that you eat too much and you feel this intense discomfort, that's jouissance. And then to make up for it, to punish yourself for that. You work out extra hard the next day and feel a different type of hurt, the strain of the muscle, another kind of jouissance. Here, what you see is you regulating your feelings of guilt or acceptance based on the infliction of pain, in this case, from you to yourself. That is not a good relationship to the no, to prohibition, to the law. A good no is a no that was pronounced Coolly, calmly, and collectedly, and in a way that sticks with you as a signifier, without need for the lawgiver or the pronouncer of that no to still be around. There's a reason why you still don't you don't still live with your parents. And if you do, that's cool too. But the reason why you're able to do that is because you've internalized all the great no's and you're ready to get by without the actual lawgiver. Sometimes you still need that assistance, right? You're a grown-ass human, but you still call your primary caregiver and be like, yo, I got a question, man. I got a real situation that requires your old-ass wisdom. That kind of stuff. So the point here is remember that This no can be pronounced with different levels of intensity, different levels of consistency. And depending on how it's pronounced and how this thing unfolds, you're going to have a different type of human subject. In Lacanian psychoanalysis, there are only three types, neurotic, pervert, and psychotic. You can be one of these three. Each of them, of course, has lots of different subtypes, but these are the main clinical structures. And each one of them is, again, determined not exclusively, but at least essentially, Lacan would say, by the child's relationship to language coming up. The psychotic didn't hear no. The pervert didn't hear it loud enough. The neurotic usually heard it just enough, but unfortunately, sometimes with a little tinge of violence. I don't know anybody who falls outside of those three categories. But don't forget, this is just a performance. I'm telling you about Lacan. I'm not that kind of doctor. This is just a lay person on the street telling you I've never met anybody who I think is other than neurotic, psychotic, or perverse. Dr. McCormick? Yeah, go ahead. Uh, yesterday you said that we hadn't quite gotten to the domain of the paternal. So is this sort of law all within the domain of the maternal? Did you say paternal with a P? Yeah. Um, well, is you said we hadn't gotten to the paternal yeah. yesterday. So we're still in the maternal. Mm-mm. You got this yeah. right, my brother. This is great. Because we are now entering into what Lacan refers to as the paternal function. And that doesn't mean, I want to emphasize this again, that does not mean that you have to have a penis or be a biological male in order to perform the paternal function. What he's trying to suggest is that usually, traditionally, this is a masculinized subject position that masculinized bodies tend to slip into. And the maternal function, it doesn't mean you have to be a biological woman to do that. It just means it tends to be, and if you think about this as a critical social theory, it makes a lot of sense. This is a feminized subject position that in order to occupy it, you have to usually be inscribed with certain codes of femininity to plug in. Doesn't mean you can't be that as a man. I mean, come on people. (laughs) So yes, we are now verging on the paternal function. And I wanna be really clear about this. Remember how I gave you a very crisp and clean definition of little a? It's the minimum amount of distance required to maintain the distinction between any two entities. That's all it is. It's the irreducible gap that has to be maintained between two things in order to keep them separate. You see, even my hands pressed very firmly together they're still two separate hands, and you can see that at the level of the crack. No matter how closely I press them together, they are still distinct, and you can see that. What else is the dream of sex but the ability to squash that gap? But let me tell you what you already know. Bodies pressed together, no matter how close or interpenetrative, are still two separate bodies. That little a is what keeps them distinct. It's what marks the irreducible gap between the two bodies. I want to give you a similar definition of the paternal function, because this has bollocksed up so many readers of Lacan over the years, producing all sorts of bad vibrations. Lacan talks about the, quote, name of the father as being a big deal. And I just want to tell you what he means by that very clearly. The name of the father is the no of the father. And the reason why I say that is because you have to remember, you're reading this in English. Lacan worked all this out in French. And in French, nom of the father, name of the father, Cannot be audibly discerned from nom of the father, non with an N, not an M of the father. Whenever he says name of the father, whenever he says that, the French listener hears simultaneously name of the father and no of the father. The paternal function is prohibition, it is the no. The utterance that marks the paternal function is a prohibitive utterance. And if you will bear with me, I'd like to show you a little bit of how this works. So getting back to these little diagrams that we've been drawing, I showed you one yesterday. And in this diagram, you had the maternal function related to the child. And then you had this imaginary object. And you'll recall how this went. The child has desire for the maternal function, or in this case, the primary caregiver. But they realize that this primary caregiver is also interested in other stuff car keys, perhaps the phone. And so the child thinks, well, if I can secure this imaginary object for myself, then I will be able to attend to have the maternal figure attend to me. So it's this kind of pre-Oedipal highly imaginative move where the child figures, if they can align themselves with whatever else mommy or daddy is interested in, they will in turn, be able to satisfy their desire for mommy or daddy's affection. Is that clear so far? Okay. This example shows that even in the pre-edipal phase, even in a pre-linguistic phase, the child is already inclined towards symbolicity. Symbols are already popping up. This imaginary object is highly symbolic. It's like, it's like at one remove, the child knows that at one remove, if they can just identify with this, they will in turn get that. So what you see here is a kind of one, two. One gets two. That kind of abstract symbolic work where the phone symbolizes mommy or daddy's affection is a big deal. So this imaginary object, which Lacan, for better and I suggest mostly for worse, refers to as the imaginary phallus, is what allows the child to satisfy their desire for another, or at least this is the gambit or the gamble or the wager that the child is willing to make. Now, in neurosis, perversion and psychosis, Something happens in this model. And I'm here responding to this point about, are we on the verge of the paternal function? Because I'm gonna walk us right up to it. Are we all clear on this diagram so far? Do you recall how this was desire for, but then by working through the imaginary object, it showed the child assuming the desire of the parent? and desiring parts of the world as someone other than themselves. Desire for, desire of, desire as. This is in essence what Lacan is doing when he says that man, human desire is always the desire of the other because it is as others that we desire. And you'll recall the example of the mirror which once again is probably the only thing that everybody here today has done is glance at themselves in the mirror. The mirror is an example of us desiring as others. Judging our likability based on how well we think we approximate the desire of another. That's the perspective that the mirror gets. It's not, how do I look? The mirror answers a different question. How do I look from somebody else's perspective? And if you want to take the feminized turn here that happened in the 1980s, it was so damn crucial, and not just to film studies, but to broader social theory, it's this. To be a feminized subject in the West is usually to have thoroughly internalized one particular erotic gaze over the other. And that is the male, the heteronormative male erotic gaze. So when a woman, quote unquote, woman in the West, looks at herself in the mirror, Laura Mulvey pointed out, what she is doing is not just looking at herself from her own point of view, not even looking at herself from another hetero woman's point of view. She's looking at herself from the point of view of an aroused male subject. I mean, ideally aroused, because it could also be a disgusted male subject. The question is not, am I desirable, but am I desirable to a hetero man? And so what you see is this internalization of a, let's face it, highly misogynistic way of seeing themselves that women in the West are taught to have just by strictly use of the mirror. So it's different for feminized subjects. And here again, I don't wanna emphasize whether you have a penis or a vagina. Like my kid is right down the middle. People don't know if she's a boy or a girl. She doesn't like that, but she just is who she is. She still says she's a she, but people don't know. They call her they. This is a real thing. And it might be productive for her to remain in the middle, but damn, if it isn't challenging it's really difficult for her to be in the middle. It's much easier to simply toggle onto one side or the other. It's really easy to simply occupy one of the two binary positions. And what I'm here suggesting is that this logic of desire for, as, and etc., this is not just a theoretical exercise. This is shit that women go through day in and day out. And the origin of this thought, the origin of this insight, Laura Mulvey got it by reading Lacan. The term in question here is called the gaze, G-A-Z-E. The gaze is always there. It is the position and any position from which you can be seen. And we internalize this. Lacan's great example of this is being a poor broke student and working on a fishing boat. And he's out there floating around trying to catch fish with all these drunk Frenchmen. And he says, one of the Frenchmen turns to him and says, you see that tuna can out there? And Lacan says, no, I don't. And the Frenchman laughs, (laughs) well, it sees you. And Lacan says, ah, that's how the gaze works. Even and especially when you don't see it, it sees you. You know who else internalized that idea and gave us the greatest theory of the prison system that the modern world has yet to see? Foucault and his theory of the panopticon which actually got internalized into the very structure of modern prison systems. This is the logic of the two-way mirror. The logic of the two-way mirror is you don't know if there's anybody behind there watching you, but the very fact that there could be someone watching you from that perspective causes you to behave well. Prison systems loved this because it meant they needed less guards. They realized, that in order to keep prisoners in line, it was more cost effective and more effective generally to simply have a tower with a mirrored exterior than to actually have a physical guard there armed, even pointing a gun at the the subject. My friend Mark Andrejevich refers to this as the work of being watched. The work that we do to maintain ourselves, and our relationships as though they're being watched. This is also directly derived from Lacanian psychoanalysis. So, think of what's happening here today as the Karate Kid on Fast Forward. You don't know why I'm asking you to paint the fence. You don't know why I'm asking you to wash the car. And you might not ever figure it out either. But what I'm trying to do here in this moment is to show you that the foundations, these building blocks of Lacanian psychoanalysis that I'm giving you prop up a whole hell of a lot of social thought and social critique. This isn't just about how the child is introduced to language and prohibition and the like. No, nah, this isn't just about desire for, of, and as. This is about what happened to you when you became a, quote, woman. This is what happened to your patient when they followed the similar path. Lacan is never just popping off, even and especially when it sounds like he is. Those are usually when he's making the most profound points, clinical points about how to do this stuff. So here we are. With that said, and with this in front of us, Are you clear enough with this basic model for us to start taking it apart and adding things to it? Good, any questions so far? Before we hop to the paternal function, can you just take a minute to talk more about how the real relates to the longing for the maternal body? Mm. Yeah. In seminar 20, about 10 years after the essay that we read today, Lacan starts to develop these two different fields of jouissance, of enjoyment. He says there is phallic jouissance, which tends to be masculinized. This is hypergenitalized forms of sexual enjoyment. And the dominant organ for that enjoyment becomes the dick, the phallus. Lacan always wants to make this distinction that Freud intuited but never quite developed between a penis and a phallus. One of the problems that comes up with people reading Lacan is that they think when he says phallus, he's talking about dicks. He's not. The biological organ, the anatomical flap of skin known as the penis, is not what Lacan is talking about when he talks about the phallus. The phallus is an image of the penis, a derived figure, a symbol, if you will. So there can be a symbolic phallus, and in this case, an imaginary phallus. But they are signifiers. He is not referring to the biological organ. So you cannot have a penis, but have lots of phalluses. You can have access to the phallus without having a penis. You can have a penis, but not have the phallus at all. And let me be very clear, and also a little quipping. Most people who have the phallus are also dicks. You see what I did there, isn't that hilarious? Thank you, thank you, I'll be here all night. Thank you for coming to my comedy show, this is great. Ted Talk turned comedy, yeah. This is a very good thing to know here. Part of what makes, allows somebody to be that quote unquote jerk, is their relationship to the phallus. You can think of the phallus not so much as a penis, think of it as whoever has the mic. The phallus is very much like the microphone. And you have to ask yourself, what's better? Do you want to have the phallus or do you want to be the phallus? Do you want to have the thing that allows you to speak louder than everybody else and be heard? Or do you want to be the thing that allows someone else to speak louder and allow them to be heard? And let me put this very clearly in terms of hip hop culture, right? Do you want to be the mic that gets passed from MC to MC to MC? Do you want to be the phallus that gets passed around between the boys? Think about this or do you want to be among the boys that has the phallus that gets a turn with it it's kind of a crass way to think about this but it puts us on a different path not an anatomical path as freud would leave us but on a social path where now what we're looking at are power relationships the phallus has everything to do with navigating differential power relationships, relations of power in which some people are allowed to have the mic and others are not. Guess who else read Lacan? Gyatri Spivak, The Origin of Subaltern Studies, for those of you that have done all your post-colonial theoretical work at this point. And one of the things that she learned from Lacan about subaltern subjectivities, the colonized body, is that The colonizer had dominated the discussion for so long that we had been asking the wrong question. We used to think, why is it that the subaltern can't speak? Spivak turns the question on its head using Lacan, but also Derrida to say the question is not, why can't the subaltern speak? The question is, why can't we hear them? And I would just suggest that you might put the same question to nature. The question is not, are the dolphins talking? The question is, why can't you understand them? So you can flip this question in ways that a Lacanian would allow you to do. But I want to emphasize this again. One of the great origins of subaltern studies is Lacanian psychoanalysis. Because when you start shifting from penis talk, and penis envy and all this nonsense, and you start getting into the symbolic rigors of the project, in other words, shifting from penis to phallus, now you're starting to talk about something more interesting, social relations, relations of power, relations of authority, domination, colonialism. Don't forget that one of the best Lacanians the 20th century ever saw was Fanon. Did you know that? People are finally tuned into the fact that he was also a practicing Lacanian psychoanalysis. And his job as an analyst was to analyze subaltern subjectivities. And he said Lacanian psychoanalysis needed a serious tune-up in order to be able to work for the subaltern subject. Mm Hmm. Franz Fanon one of the great Lacanians of the world. You can even read his case notes now. They're out. It's pretty interesting. I predict in about five years that that field of of scholarship is going to be popping. It's already starting to, um, but it's pretty terrific what's happening with Lacan and African studies. Anyway, I digress. Hillary asked a question about the maternal function, about this identification with mother as wholeness. I would just suggest that woman's body is oftentimes figured as another uteromorphic space and not too far removed from the uterus itself. It's partly for that reason. There's also something highly misogynistic though that has happened along the way. For woman to appear in public in the West, she's usually been represented as one of four figures, each of which is determined by a maladaptive uterus. So for instance, for a woman to appear in public, she was oftentimes figured as a whore, prostitute. That was one of the big four. Now, woman in public that you would see back in the day, I'm talking hundreds of years ago, if she was out in the street without a man, you'd be like hooker. That was the assumption. And like any successful prostitute, Barring, of course, certain subsets of human sexuality. Prostitutes are skilled at having sex and not getting pregnant. They know how to stop their uterus from working. A non-working reproductive system is the condition of possibility for effective hookerdom. This is the misogynistic theory. Yeah, seriously. Let's put it on the other side of things not the extremely alluring prostitute who knows how to flip her uterine switch off. Put us on the other end, the witch. Now what you know about witches, witches are old, covered with blemishes. They've got canes and gnarly hands. Witches are typically depicted as crones, a crone. In other words, they are depicted as women who are past their reproductive age. The witch is always somebody who doesn't need to turn off her uterus because it has already turned off on its own. The witch is out there working it through, casting spells, meeting up with people, visiting courts and the like. Think of this fantasy, these myths of witches. It's a total stereotype too, by the way. Witches can be other things too but the stereotype, the Disney depiction of the witch is always as someone who couldn't get pregnant if she tried, menopause. In the religious tradition, you have a third, the Heresiarch. This was the woman in the history of Christianity in particular who wanted to be a leader in the church, call her Joan of Arc, if you will. You'll note that women were allowed leadership in the Christian church, but only insofar as they remain virgins. Here is the figure of the nun. Now the church is less of an authoritative force today than it was a thousand years ago, but the traditions that were established after 2000 years of intense Christianity, it's only recently that Christianity has kind of dropped into the background, allowing the other big C capitalism to become the dominant ideology of the West. It used to be Christianity and capitalism, for hundreds of years from about 1500 forward. But then about 150 years ago, Christianity starts to drop off, displaced by quote unquote science and the like. But for thousands of years, and we're talking a couple thousand years at this point, about two millennia, Christianity was right there long before capitalism was there. Now what's interesting is you can see the way that Christianity shored up capitalism the Christian relationship to money very much informed the modern turn towards capitalism. The two C's were always hooked into each other in strange ways. But in the case of Christianity, all those millennia of women being put into nunneries, get thee to a nunnery. It allowed for a certain public image of woman to emerge, This was woman as virgin, only ever fucking Jesus, and only ever through her ear or whatever, some other orifice, some other opening becomes the the new vagina. But the idea here is that the similar, we see a similar theme emerging. The witch, the prostitute, the nun, these are all women whose reproductive systems have been shut down closed off, which brings us to the fourth and arguably the most familiar to you figure. This is the hysteric. The hysteric prior to World War I was often a feminized subject position. Now what Freud realized after World War I is that guys coming back from war with shell shock, quote unquote, shell shock, were hysterical. And I don't mean funny. They were hystericized subjectivities and they could be treated and helped the same way that a hysteric as a feminized body could be helped as well. But prior to that point, from really Aristotle forward, there was this idea, and now Aristotle, come on people, that's over 2000 years ago. There was this idea that when woman spoke up in public, for woman to quote, raise her voice, what was actually being raised was her uterus. And that what was happening when woman would speak is that Aristotle figured that her uterus had gotten lodged in her throat. It had strayed. It had strayed from its proper crotchal region up into her throat. And you know what the Greek word for uterus is, right? Hyster, as in hysterectomy, as in hysteria. The treatment of the hysteric patient prior to World War I was the treatment of a stray uterus. It was as though the vagina had learned to talk. And that was the treatment. These four ways that women were allowed to appear in public, all have the very same foundation, a maladjusted non-functioning reproductive system. This was properly woman outside her place, outside the private sphere. What the Greeks knew is the oikos, which is the origin of the word economy, which is why that class you took in high school, home ec, was totally redundant. It should have just been called economy, oikonomy. The oikos gives us economy. It was originally the study of private home life and the types of reproduction that occur there at the level of food maintenance, at the level of slave maintenance. Greeks had slaves, democracy and all, but also primarily at the level of reproduction, the reproduction of life. This was all the purview of woman in antiquity, and it carried forward. So for a woman to stray from the private sphere, the home oikos, out into public, something was going to be mixed up. That subject position couldn't even appear in what Lacan would call the field of phallic jouissance. Woman always occurred in some other place, some place beyond the masculinized world of publicity, of the public sphere. So for her to show up was to show up as this kind of anomalous being, unlike any woman that you had ever experienced. Because the women that the man would have experienced back then would have been sisters destined to become mothers, mothers destined to become grandmothers. It was all premised on reproduction, on this uterine experience that was properly woman's experience. So now you can start crunching this into different cultural traditions where menstruating women, anything that signals femininity, anything that signals reproduction, involves them being cast out, shoved aside, pushed into this other field, as I kind of push beyond the frame of my screen to kind of show you this other space that can no longer be seen. In seminar 20, Lacan calls this, not phallic jouissance, but other jouissance something different, something beyond. And his argument there, which has been missed by so many scholars, is that women have access to phallic jouissance, but they also have access to something else that men, and here we mean masculinized subjectivities do not have access to. The masculinized subject only has access to phallic jouissance, genitalized jouissance sexual enjoyment at the level of a swimsuit zone. The feminized subject has access to jouissance that doesn't occur here, but over here somewhere. And this gets to Hillary's question because woman starts to become the figure, a figure of something that is beyond the social order something or someone with access to a field that is already prohibited to those who speak, already prohibited to members of society. She doesn't just have access to jouissance, which society prohibits. She has access to an other jouissance, another. Not just regular jouissance, the kind of shit that happens in the bedroom with closed doors she now has access to something that can't even be comprehended by the symbolic. Whatever can't be comprehended by the symbolic in Lacanian terms is referred to as the real. The real. This is how feminized subjectivity, especially at the level of jouissance, oftentimes gets hooked into the real, even if only in a fantastical way, even if only at the level of the imaginary. In other words, you can have an imaginary real. An imaginary real is like some horrific shit that happened to you in your dream last night. The horrific traumatic imaginary real first appears on the scene in the dream of Irma's injection. If you'll recall, this is one of the defining dreams that Freud works out in the interpretation of dreams. He calls Irma over to the window. She'd been complaining of some issues. He opens her mouth, looks in the back of her mouth, in the back of her throat, effectively seeing an oral vagina back there, and sees all of these curly, turbinal, bone-like structures, like a nose that had decomposed into the back of her mouth. The history of this is fascinating. It gets back to Emma Eckstein and the origins of psychoanalysis, one of the first patients to ever be treated with psychoanalysis, and her near-death hemorrhages again and again because of some botched-ass nasal surgery that Fleece performed at Freud's behest. But as Freud works through his own self-analysis of this dream, he keeps coming back to this horrible imaginary real this image that he had that made his dream a nightmare of this woman with a decomposed throat, a decomposed nose and mouth. So what I wanna suggest here is that the figure of femininity that Hillary points us to, it doesn't mean that that's the real. It can be a fantasy of the real. It can be part and parcel of, in other words, the imaginary. There are ways that woman has been fantasized as a mystical being with access to some sort of uterine sphere that nobody can fully understand. That's different from Lacan conceptualizing this. The fantasy that we oftentimes see, well, I see it all the time. I live in San Francisco, right by the women's building. If you know this area in the mission, it's a huge building that's just painted with mystical dreams of femininity. And one of the pinnacle pictures at the top of the women's building is of a woman sitting there um, cross-legged in a kind of like meditative pose with a translucent uterus with a baby in it. And she's like radiating this light, this kind of mysticism around reproductive life and on woman's ability to do that. To the extent that that approaches horror, the grotesquerie of woman's anatomy, you might have something like an imaginary real. So I wanna suggest that it's a little more nuanced than just saying woman occupies or has access to the real. I wanna suggest that that in and of itself can be a fantasy. What else is going to the mountains backpacking where you know there are rattlesnakes and that you could possibly die but a fantasy about encountering the real, because the real is the snake that leaps out from under the rock and lashes out at your leg. The real is the tile that accidentally falls from the roof of the women's building in San Francisco and hits you on the head. The real, as Lacan once put it, is the knock at the door that wakes you from the dream.